our reading today from Romans chapter 3, 1 to 21, in the Pew Bibles, page 1196. Then, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone who are a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you were judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with the saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Thanks, Harriet. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we come to this part of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word challenges us. It shows us our sin and our desperate need for you. Please, Lord, as we look at your word together now, Help us to understand. And Lord, please help us to run to Jesus in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love a good courtroom drama. You know, the ups and downs of a trial, the tension as evidence gets presented, witnesses called, arguments mounted, shocking admissions that leave the courtroom in stunned silence. Jess and I watched a movie, A Few Good Men, last night. There's that scene at the end of the movie where Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Jack Nicholas, is finally lured into admitting his crime. He gives his self-justification, confident in his own righteousness, but he is left condemned. Colonel Jessup, the attorney, the courtroom, even us watching on, are left in shocked silence. 
Over the last two weeks of Romans, we've taken a deep dive into the darkness of human sinfulness. It's been tough going. This is the problem that we all share, the sin that lies in our core. We saw in chapter 1, do you remember, that we live in shameful sin because we swap the truth of God for a lie. Rather than worship the creator, we worship his creation. And God pours out his just wrath by giving us over to our sin, by giving us what we want. Terrifying. And then last week in chapter 2, Paul shattered any hopes that we might have left in our religious pride. Any hope that we might have in our outward appearance of righteousness. We easily find fault in others, but we are hypocrites. We hide our sins. We condemn ourselves by our judgments. We show contempt for God's kindness instead of repenting. God's just wrath is being sought up for the day when he will judge us for all for what we've done. The last two weeks, we've been the ones in the dock, the ones on trial. The Apostle Paul has laid out all the evidence. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, God's chosen people and everyone else, religious or not, good people or not, every nation, tribe and tongue, whether we admit it or deny it, we are condemned before God. We are left silenced. That's what we're going to see today. Paul wraps up his case. There are no excuses left for us. No wiggling our way out of it. No explaining it away. No self-justification left for us. We're going to see today that humanity is charged, condemned and sentenced. But where Paul lands might surprise us. There's an unexpected but now that changes everything. So follow along in your Bible, take notes in your bulletin. Let's take a deep breath as we start with humanity charged. Paul's just completed his forensic examination of the evidence. He's examined every Jew and Gentile person, past, present and future. And now Paul starts to wrap up his argument. You can see it there in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now let's pay close attention here. Paul, a Jew, asks, are we Jews any better off? He's saying, do we get a free pass when it comes to God's judgment against sin? But the answer is no. Jews and Gentiles alike, Jews and Greeks, we are all under the power of sin. That doesn't mean that there are no benefits at all to being a Jew. Paul answered that little objection in verses 1 to 8. We read it out this morning. We missed digging into it last week. But Paul has this little Q&A session with himself and he concludes, yes, the Jews do have benefits. They have God's word, God's promises, the sign of circumcision. They get a front row seat to God's faithfulness throughout history. And God will honour his promises to his people. He remains faithful to them. It's something Paul's going to come back to in chapters 9 to 11. But now Paul concludes in verse 9, even good religious Jews are not off the hook. When it comes to God's judgment, to being right with God, 
they aren't any better off. Along with shameful Gentiles and Jewish hypocrites, they too are under the charge of sin. Paul's pulled on the thread of human sin that unravels even the most pious person's clothing, leaving all of us exposed to our own sinfulness. As Christians, we aren't immune to this. But we see the deadly effects of sin in our own lives, don't we? We see the patterns of selfishness that rule our relationships as we fight over what's right and wrong. We've, we've disobeyed those in authority over us, doing what I want, when I want. Or accepting those addictive little surrenders to lustful looks and thoughts. Gossiping about others in the name of care. Greedy habits with our money. But no matter what you say, your wallet and your budget betrays you in the end. Or maybe it's the way that we treat those we're called to care for, being ruthless and not showing compassion and love but disdain. Without Jesus, we are under sin, under its power. We choose what we want to choose, but under the power of sin, our choice will always be for sin. And God, in his just judgment, gives us over to it. There is hope for us in Jesus. But Paul's going to encourage us later. We can have new life in him, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit to change us to more like him. If we trust in Jesus, we will no longer live as slaves to sin. But let's not skip past this passage too fast. Paul's message is sobering. God's charge against humanity has been made. No one is exempt, Jew, Gentile, religious or irreligious, good person or not. All are under sin. Paul's moving towards his conclusion and now he brings it home with a barrage from God's word itself from the Old Testament. We see that humanity is not only charged, we are condemned. In chapters 1 and 2, remember, we saw how everyone is under the power of sin, no matter who you are or where you've come from. But now, Paul shows us that every part of everyone is under the power of sin. Our hearts, our words, and our actions. It starts with our hearts. Now, if there's one thing that the Jews know, it's the Old Testament Scriptures. If you were born as a Jew, you would have heard them regularly, raised, hearing the stories, singing the Psalms, taught the Torah. It's weaved into the routine of life. So Paul calls his final witness to the stand. God's word itself. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now let's be clear here. Paul is not saying that no one seeks God to answer prayer. He's not saying that no one seeks God for spiritual power or peace or to understand that God's will amidst the death of a loved one or in the middle of dark times. Or to get the courage and strength just to throw a foot out and take the next step. As the old saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. But Paul is saying, as Keller puts it, that no one prompted by their own decision and acting in their own ability wants to find 
God. You see, our hearts are so bent on being in control that we want to box God up and confine him to a category. We want him, but as a philosophical construct or as a moral starting point, we want God on our terms, not on his. We hold him at arm's length with no real desire to encounter him on his terms and do the business that we so desperately need to do with him. We avoid his call on our lives. We avoid his accountability to, uh, our accountability to him because it doesn't fit our plans and we want to justify ourselves in our self-belief. Or we treat God like a supernatural sky genie. We privilege him with our requests in prayer. We acknowledge we need someone just a little bit bigger than us, like a spiritual booster shot to get along the next thing. Just a little bump along added to living under our own power. Without the gospel, our hearts roam aimlessly, looking for the next idol to satisfy. Without God's gospel, we won't understand God or seek God. We will turn away from him and we will construct the God that we want. Without God's gospel, we won't do what is good or kind. Let's hear what Paul is saying here without watering it down or explaining it away. He says no one does good. He doesn't mean that people can't do good things. We see all sorts of people in our world doing good things. But he's talking about good in terms of our relationship with God. The truth is that everything good that we do is tainted somehow by our sin. It's tainted in our motives. It's tainted in our own desires for praise or recognition or glory or self-justification. It's tainted in extent when we don't do all the good that we should. None of our good is objectively good enough to make us right with God. It's all tainted. It'd be like pouring more clean water into that glass that we had for the kids' talk. It doesn't solve the problem. It just dilutes it. Without the gospel, we can't do good. And we can't truly know God as he is, the God who has pursued us and given up his own son to redeem us and bring us into his family and call us his own. Without the gospel, the taint of sin spreads from our hearts to our words. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. See that escalation here from the heart to the throat to the tongue, past the deadly poison dripping lips? It's a vivid picture. This is a heart under the power of sin rather than the gospel. It produces death, not life. It's what Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Under the power of sin, their throats are like open graves and their tongues practice deceit. Paul's being so intentional here with the Psalms that he quotes. See, even in the Psalms, the people uh, that David speaks of here are not just distant Gentiles. Many, perhaps most of them, come from Israel. You know, it's easy to read the Psalms thinking that when David talks about his enemies, he's always talking about non-Jews. 
But in David's life, the biggest challenges to his rule came from in-house. Like Saul, the previous king, or Absalom, David's own son. David's enemies were often the very people who were supposed to be backing him. They were Jews who didn't trust or obey God. Who lived under the power of sin instead of depending on God in faith. And so Paul redirects David's words, including about the Jews. Without the gospel, all humanity lives under the power of sin. And that includes our words. He is a vivid picture of this, an open grave. The Jews had strict laws around death. Touching a dead body would make you ritually unclean, unable to come before God in the temple. A dead body is one thing, but an open grave means so much more. Imagine the stench. It is an endless source of ritual uncleanness before God spewing out of our throats because of our sinful hearts, not only defiling the speaker but those who hear. Their tongues practice deceit like the liar who retells his lies, using smooth words to hide a sinister agenda, or using part-truths to puff ourselves up while we put others down, pretending to be on someone's side and then betraying them in the next breath. These words are poison to the speaker and to those who hear them. It's no wonder gossip culture kills healthy churches, is it? Gossip carries the stench of death. Is there a more deadly weapon than the human mouth? The words said in a broken relationship that can't be unheard? The rumours of your enemy's mistakes and pain and hardship that you want to spread like wildfire. Words that promote self and tear down others. The jokes that you tell, the sledges and the takedowns made at others' expense. Camouflaging sharp words and humour, spinning and twisting the truth to suit our own agenda. Or using manipulative, passive-aggressive words to use others for our own purposes grumbling and complaining when things aren't going the way they think that the we think they should. The human heart, under the power of sin, turns from God and as a result from our mouths spews the toxic sludge of our rejection of him. But Paul's not done yet. Sin also taints our actions. Paul moves from motives and words to actions and consequences. He quotes Isaiah in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. These are things that we do or don't do that bring harm to others, that destroy harmony and peace in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our neighbourhoods, even in the church. These are the actions that flow from sinful hearts that leave destruction in our wakes. What Paul's talking about in this passage is what we often call total depravity. Now, let me get this straight. Total depravity doesn't mean that people are as evil as they possibly could be. After all, not all people are abusers or criminals or adulterers or murderers. Now, it's not about the extent of depravity in our lives. 
There's, it is that there isn't a single part of us that isn't affected by that depravity. Sin taints every part of our lives. Everything that we do, every word we speak, every part of who we are. Just imagine that I put a drop of deadly poison into a glass of fresh water. The whole thing is ruined, right? It's not as poisonous as it possibly could be, but the poison has spread to every part. You wouldn't drink any of it. You can't just drink around the poison. That's how it is with us. The poison of sin affects our whole lives, every part. That's Paul's whole point so far. No matter how good we think we are at holding at bay our shameful desires or swimming against the tide on our own, no matter how well we hide our secrets or control our hypocritical tendencies, without the gospel we are all under the power of sin. And it affects everything. All are under the power of sin. None are righteous, not even one. Verse 18 There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul finishes the charge with Psalm 36, linking it back to where we started in chapter 1, verse 18. Apart from the gospel, we suppress the truth by our wickedness. We are apart from God. By nature, there is no fear of God before our eyes. Now, you might think this is a bit extreme, but let's think about it for a moment. Because if I feared God, then surely at least my words would be on point, right? Let's just imagine that there was a recording of all things you've said over the last seven days, just since you left church last week. Everything you said, everything you emailed or texted, all those brave posts on social media from the safety of your keyboard, those things mumbled under your breath at the supermarket or at work, the swear words you hear said out loud in the car when you're driving by yourself. Or even those words that you've entertained in your head, the ones you know you shouldn't. What if there was a recording of all that from the last week? What about the last month? The last year? The last decade? Would it capture words that are meant to flatter but actually deceive? Would it capture words that hide your true intentions? Words that belittle and criticise? Words that judge? Imagine that recording being played out loud for all to hear. Not just the words you said, but what you really meant by them. For all to hear as you stand before God. Your own condemning words filling the air. There is nowhere to hide. The recording finishes, you and I are silenced. The courtroom is silenced. Humanity is silenced. It's an open and shut case. There's no doubt about it. Paul reads out the heavenly verdict. Humanity is sentenced. There are no excuses left for us. No more justification. God's word has done its work on us. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul underlines who he's speaking to here. He's speaking to the religious, those law-keeping, Bible-loving, self-righteous people. All the scriptures he's quoted are to show that that's what the law says that people are like. No one is exempt, not even the people who have the law. The law may have locked out the Gentiles, but now it locks up the Jews. It should lead us all to abandon any proud idea that in our own way, under our own steam, we are in any way good with God. We can't be right by simply observing the law. Works of the law can't do it because the standard required is nothing less than perfection. The law is there to show us how badly we fall short. It's like an x-ray that shows us just how bad the damage is. It can't fix us. It can only tell us the problem. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law leaves us silenced. It shuts every mouth. It holds us all accountable. Paul wanted to point out to the Roman church the depth and expanse of human sinfulness. He wants them each to feel the weight of it, to know the hopelessness of it. You know, there are two words that my kids say that annoy me more than any other words. Those words are, but dad. It normally goes something like this. Stop hitting your sister. That is not okay. Go and sit on your bed. But dad... And then the excuses come. She stole something. She said something I didn't like. She looked at me funny. I'm tired. No, go to your room. But dad... Oh, I tell you, it gets under my skin like crazy. It is a sure way to get me riled up. But every now and then they will realise that they've been caught. They'll realise there is no answer and no excuse. I'll see what they did with my own eyes. Hey, why did you hit your sister? But there's no answers, no excuses, no justification, no but dads. They know they've been caught. There's no answer. There's only silence. That's what Paul has done to us. He's exhausted all our excuses, all our but dads. But I didn't know. But I'm religious. But I'm a good person. But I'm a Jew. No. We are condemned. Revealed for who we are without Jesus. There are no more excuses, no more explanations, no hope of self-justification. Whether we're out-and-out sinners or self-righteous hypocrites, we all stand before the judgment seat of God. The evidence has been shown. We're caught red-handed, exposed for who we really are. We stand under the wrath of God that we righteously, rightly deserve. And we are silenced.
but now. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul wants us to feel the weight of sin. He wants us to know the hopelessness of it, but not because he is some kind of wet blanket, not because he wants to hurt us. It's so the wonder of the gospel can shine all the brighter in the darkness. It's so that we can desperately see how much we need Jesus. Paul is like a good doctor. He's spelt out the symptoms of sin in every part of our lives. He's examined us closely, performed the tests, and he's given us a prognosis. It is not good. We are all sinners, all rightfully under the wrath of God. Our sin leads to death and judgment, but there's a cure. A wonderful, free, life-giving cure. The cure Jesus gives us in the gospel. But now. We've just seen Paul lay scripture upon scripture before us, showing us what the law and prophets say. But the law and prophets also bear witness to something better. They point us to grace, to the righteousness of God apart from the law. Righteousness is a free gift, not as wages that can never be earned. This grace brings commoners and kings to their knees in repentance. It drives Jews and Gentiles to cry out to Jesus. It is for self-righteous religious people and for flagrant out-and-out sinners. The grace of God who has made himself known, who has come and been a part of what he's created through his Son. The grace of God has fulfilled all that he has promised through the law and the prophets. The grace of God revealed in the gospel. Just like Paul said all the way back in chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants us to see with absolute clarity God's gospel power which breaks the power of sin over us. Which allows those who are trapped in sin to be saved, to be declared righteous on God's judgment day. And all of this is a gift to those who believe, a gift to be received by faith. Please make sure you come back next week. We're going to dive into more about that gift. I don't know about you, but for me, the last three weeks have been tough going. They've been a roller coaster. The words of Paul from the middle of chapter 1 to here have been hard. They've been deeply impacting. That's why Paul writes it, because we really need to hear it. It is too easy for us to skip the parts of God's word that we don't like, for us to skip straight to the grace bit, because it's easier. But we must hear these parts of God's word. We must face these things that we don't want to face. We must see in ourselves these things that we don't want to see. Because it's when we give time to come to terms with our true nature, when we face the convicting work of the Spirit in our hearts, that's when God does his work in us, bringing us to our knees, 
bearing with us kindly, patiently, leading us to repentance, putting us back together again and giving us life in him through his saving righteousness now revealed in the gospel and calling us to live in the obedience of faith. How should we respond to these chapters? To Paul's opening argument that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Don't evade it. Don't make excuses. No but dads. Instead we must face it. Accept it. And then run to Jesus. Run to him in faith. Run to him in dependence. Run to him as the only one who can save us. Because the price has been paid. The gospel is powerful. And his arms are open wide. Run to him. Let's pray. Lord God, our, your word leaves us silenced before you because of our sin. We have no excuses, no justification, no explanations. Sin affects every part of us apart from your work in our lives. And Lord, apart from your grace to us in Jesus, we stand rightly condemned. Thank you for the but now of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, the one who paid the penalty that we rightly deserve. Thank you for Jesus who calls all of us to run to him in faith and find in him the gift of your righteousness. Please help us to run to him, to keep running to him this week. Please knock down any pride or self-justification in our hearts so that we might see that we just need Jesus and run to him. Please do this work by your spirit in us. And please fill us with joy as we see the depth of our sin and we see the wonder of your work for us in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.